Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Call us a fast society, an efficient society, but don't call us a personal society. Our society is set up for isolation. We wear earbuds when we exercise. We communicate via email and text messages. Our mantra, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. Yet God wants his people to be an exception. Let everyone else go the way of computers and keyboards. God's children will be people of hospitality. Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. The believers met together in the temple every day. They ate together in their homes, happy to share food with joyful hearts. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The primary gathering place of the church was in the home. Now today we meet in the Archbishop's Corner, and we recall the words of Jesus that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. For the early Christian community, the house was the primary gathering place the Eucharist was celebrated and where the gospel was shared. Today we meet in the Archbishop's Corner to celebrate God's Word and break open a new understanding of the gospel as we look to Archbishop Leonard Blair to open our hearts and minds to God's Word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you? Very well, thank you. Any news to report on this Sunday morning? Ooh, Sunday news. Well, Jesus is risen from the dead, Good and he's Lord. coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. That's the good news. And today we observe the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, which is always celebrated the week after Pentecost, the day the Catholic Church is set aside to honor the most fundamental of Christian beliefs, the Holy Trinity. They say that the concept of the Trinity can never be completely understood or rationalized, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. In simplest terms, can you explain the Holy Trinity to us? Oh, well, that's a question. <laughs> in well, simplest I mean, terms. Well, we've, I think, talked about this in years past. It's not a problem to be solved. It's the mystery of God that's been revealed to us in Scripture. You know, that the Church, on the basis of the faith handed on and the gift of the Holy Spirit and uh, what Scripture says, we have uh, the doctrine of the Most Holy Trinity. One God and three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that when we come to our Gospel. But in any case, tomorrow is the feast of St. Anthony of Padua. He's the patron saint of the poor, travelers, and lost items, most often remembered as the saint that we pray to for help in finding lost items. A strong following by the Italians and the Portuguese, uh, there are a number of festivals in his honor, and many churches offer a St. Anthony blessing of the bread. How important do you feel, Archbishop, the ethnic traditions relating to saints are to the church? Well, I think that the traditional social gatherings and uh, festivals and devotional things of people are extremely important because in many ways they are the bearers of the handing out of the faith. And sadly, uh, with their demise, because they have largely disappeared, but not entirely, this leaves a huge gap, a huge vacuum 
that has not yet been filled by anything else. You know, it's one thing to talk about the theology of the Mass or the uh, theology of worship, uh, which we've done so much of since the Second Vatican Council, but there's also what's called popular piety. Mm. And for many people, this is a very important expression of their faith, and in some cases, very often of their culture, because it's tied to particular communities or ethnicities or languages. And losing that really is a problem. Uh, so I, wherever we can, we can uh, encourage uh, these kinds of things, uh, obviously to be celebrated in a wholesome and good and religious way, then that's something that we should do. I'm, I'm wondering if we're passing on these traditions, especially in terms of, of the saints, to our young people today. I mean, they're barely learning about such things as the Trinity in religious education classes today. Are they learning about the saints and the traditions that you and I have been brought up with? Well, I would be a little hesitant to say that they're not learning the doctrines of the faith or the teachings of the church I think those people who are striving to impart that knowledge in religious ed are doing as good a job as they can, and they they have many good resources to help them. But uh, as far as the, you don't teach devotions so much as you you do them, you practice them, and uh, to the extent that so many of those devotions have uh, uh, fallen by the wayside, not all, but many of them have, uh, then that's a diminishment that we should try to sustain as best we can. Of course, you know we're coming up to a big celebration of a year of uh, years of the Eucharist. So the Corpus Christi procession will be a big event, and it's one of those kind of devotional uh, things. It's connected certainly to the liturgy, but it is the procession with the Eucharist and such. Uh, that is uh, that one is still prominent, and we want to make it even more prominent over the next few years to sustain people and encourage them in the practice of, of our faith in the true presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Will, will that be celebrated in a very special way next week, then, as we celebrate the Feast of Corpus Christi? Well, I'm going to be participating uh, with Bishop Betancourt in Waterbury in the big Corpus Christi procession, which I believe begins at Todos Los Santos uh, Parish All Saints and ends at the Basilica. Uh, that will be in the afternoon. They've traditionally had it there. I participated in the past. I've encouraged parishes to have their Corpus Christi procession. But the following year, even more so, we want to encourage this because it's part of this effort to reappreciate and deepen people's Catholic faith in uh, the uh, real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And we'll be able to talk more about that next week when we celebrate the Feast of Corpus Christi. Tuesday is the 14th of June. And we know what that means. It's Flag Day. It honors the date back in 1777 on which the Continental Congress adopted the Stars and Stripes as the country's official flag. Since the founding of the United States in 1776, there have been 27 different versions of the flag featuring the Stars and Stripes. Now, do you know how many Stars and Stripes were on the original flag, Archbishop? Well, I imagine 13 over the, the, the colonies. You are truly a history buff, aren't you? Well, if that's all it takes, I guess I am. <laughs> Easy question. Let's move on to Saturday, June 18th. It's National Splurge Day. We can all treat ourselves to something very special. On this day, all are encouraged to take time away from the stress of life and spend the time and money on something that they enjoy. Or better yet, splurge on someone else to bring a smile to their face. Is there anything that you would like to splurge on this coming Saturday, Archbishop? 
well, I don't mean to be cynical, but nowadays, just to fill up your gas tank or go to the grocery store, you're splurging just by paying the bill. Uh, I think all of our people are feeling very keenly, you know, the uh, inflation that's due to so many factors here and in the world. So, uh, but all kidding aside, we have to be responsible in, in what how we spend. I suppose a little treat here or there is certainly not a problem, but I think everybody is wanting to be a good steward of what God has given to them. Let's take a look now at our gospel that we um, have for this week. This gospel reading on the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, or better known as Trinity Sunday, the 12th day of June. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Archbishop, your thoughts on this gospel and how it relates to the Most Holy Trinity. Well, it's kind of Jesus almost rhapsodizing mystically on his uh, being the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity, and in reference to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And uh, it, it is at the heart of what we do believe about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And uh, Jesus said, I have much more to tell you. You cannot bear it now, but the Spirit will, of truth will guide you into all the truth. And that is what the church has lived by and with for the last two millennia, that no, Jesus did not tell us everything, uh, uh, but he pr- promised us that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all the truth. And with the growth... In, in depth of the faith over the years and questions that have arisen about faith, uh, the church uh, fulfills or lives by the promise that Jesus made that the, the spirit of truth would guide us into all the truth. You know, that is a very important aspect of our faith that the church is guided. And certainly not, that doesn't mean that everything the church does or, or anything that the bishops say is, is gospel uh, uh, doctrine. But on those things that are the most fundamental that have to do with our salvation, the knowledge of God and of uh, the truths of of, uh, morality and doctrine, that the Holy Spirit is there to guide us. Nor does it mean or infer that someone who has received the Holy Spirit, as in the sacrament of confirmation, will be preserved by this same Holy Spirit from falling into error, huh? No, the Holy Spirit leads and guides us, but we still have our free will, and it's possible to to go our own way or to disregard, uh, you know, these things. Our scripture also indicates that the Spirit will declare to you the things that are coming. What does that infer? Well, I think uh, this, this somewhat, uh, you know, Jesus is uh, speaking in terms for the ages that uh, have a certain mystery to them, the things that are coming Jesus himself spoke about history in kind of mysterious terms that we have the, the outline of uh, the, the basics uh, about what faith tells us about the world and, and final judgment, for example. And so we talk about discerning the signs of the times by the gift of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that it's like uh, reading a newspaper from the Holy Spirit about exactly what's happening. It's more of a sense uh, of a deepest spiritual appreciation to interpret the signs of the times in which we live. 
then how can the inquisitive mind of today's thinking person be satisfied with an attempt to understand the mystery of the Holy Trinity? One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but not three. Three persons, one God. Well, inquisitive minds can study uh, what the Catechism of the Catholic Church and what the great uh, teachers of the faith have written about this mystery, and in that way come to some deeper appreciation. Let's take a look at some of the questions now that have been submitted by our listeners. This one comes from Diana from Waterbury. Diana says, I have a couple of questions about the altar. I noticed in one parish in our area that the altar had six candles. At another parish, there are only two. Is there a proper number? Uh, not, not really. Uh, well, I mean, yes, it, proper in the sense that you, it's not proper to have a whole bunch of candelabra all over the altar. You know, it used to be uh, traditionally that the uh, so-called low mass had two candles and a high mass had six. And uh, since the altar now faces the people, some uh, altars have two, some have four, and some have six. And they're all lit for the liturgy. And I would say any of those number uh, would be appropriate uh, for, for the celebration of Mass. Sal from Madison says, I know that the Church urges frequent confession, but what if one has no mortal sins to confess? I am reluctant to go to confession because of the absence of mortal sins. As to venial sin, I'm unclear what this means anymore. Can you help? Well, Sal, I would uh, first of all say in a sense that if it's unclear to you, it would be good to find a good book on the Sacrament of Penance to help understand. Again, I, I refer to the touchstone of the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church as a starting point, but there are many good sound books written about penance. But, you know, confession is not meant just for mortal sins. I mean, a mortal sin is a serious sin by which you have, you know, offended God to the extent that you've cut yourself off from uh, eternal life. This is a very uh, serious matter indeed. Confession is not made just for mortal sins. Uh, I mean, all the saints went to confession very often. If you get a, uh, it's, it's meant to have an examination of conscience, not only about what we've done, but what we failed to do. Uh, and perhaps those circumstances when we could have done better, we could have been more Christ-like. And those are the kind of things that we can bring to an examination of conscience and then to the, to the confessional. It is true that the grace of the confessional gives one the ability to be a better person and to avoid those temptations that might lead one into sin, whether it's a venial sin, as we've been talking about, or something much more serious. The grace of the confession enables one to be strongly committed to the, the gift of God's love and sharing that love. Yes, and, you know, we, when we examine our conscience, it's about what we have done and what we have failed to do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we always have to be striving to live a life of virtue. And so we examine ourselves about the virtues and whether we have practiced them or not in, in those areas where perhaps we have a failing and we need to be more attentive. Lily from New Haven says, My church is a vital parish with good attendance and financial contribution. The only thing that bothers me is the lack of community involvement or social justice. How can I broach this subject with my pastor to help us make a spiritual difference in the area that surrounds our church? Well, Lily, this is very important because it is true that parishes are not to turn in on themselves, especially nowadays when, uh, you know, the number of people practicing the faith 
is is really reduced. And uh, this thing about being about outreach is extremely important. You've couched it in terms of social justice, and that's very valid. Uh, and that often is a way for a community uh, in a parish uh, to reach out to other people and to uh, extend themselves. And and uh, I think, uh, yes, when you say, how can you broach the subject with your pastor? I think the way to broach it is simply to uh, uh, approach him and, and ask about it. Uh, and you can tell him, you asked the bishop on the radio and he, <laughs> he encouraged you to talk to him. Uh, there may be things in your parish that you're not even aware of that are going on in groups of people. But, and the other thing too is I think, and, and I don't mean this in any way as a criticism, but uh, a lot of times people ask about what somebody else is doing, but they don't necessarily do it themselves. And by that, I simply mean, uh, Lily, that it might be good if you volunteered uh, yourself, as I, I su- suppose from your question you'd be willing to do, to, to uh, help your pastor uh, to get something organized or to do something. But that's very important. Don't you think also that looking at what other parishes are doing, perhaps in the archdiocese, in terms of outreach and social justice involvement, what are other parishes doing, and maybe suggest to the pastor, maybe we could do something like that here in this parish, Father? Well, if you go to the Archdiocesan website, or you find the Social Justice Office of the Archdiocese of Hartford, there are a number of things that are there, and... uh, I'm sure that could, you know, uh, give you a good idea of, of some of these things that are happening. Mark from Colebrook says, I don't understand how mere humans are supposed to forgive everyone everything, but we are taught that God only forgives us if we are repentant. How are we supposed to be more forgiving than he is? Well, I would hardly say that uh, Jesus, when he said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, I don't think Jesus was referring to people who were repenting of crucifying him. In fact, they were standing there jeering at him and and taunting him and saying, if you're the Son of God, come down off that cross, and Jesus forgave them. So it's not accurate to say that God forgives us only if we're repentant. But I will say, I will add this um, additional point that's extremely important. You are correct in the sense that God does not force forgiveness on people if they don't accept it. Uh, And so, you know, who knows whether eventually Christ's tormentors at the foot of the cross really were sorry for what they did or not. Because if they were not sorry and they never came to realize that, well, then that that has to be reckoned with in eternity. But but God's mercy extends to, to, uh, to people, to everyone, no matter what their sin. And we have to imitate Christ in that because we don't know uh, how their what their hearts will be before the throne of God, but we know that we have to offer them uh, our our forgiveness, because that's for our benefit. God's forgiveness is offered to all, but we have the ability to refuse the gift of forgiveness. But it's offered to all, and we are supposed to be forgiving in the sense that we offer that forgiveness like God, like Jesus. We offer it to all. Now, whether they accept it, or whether they embrace it, whether they are changed by it uh, is part of their free will, their free decision. But we certainly have to offer it to, to, to everyone. Teresa from Enfield says, 
A Jewish friend insists that, according to his religion, there is simply no afterlife. Is this true and consistent with the Old Testament? Well, Teresa, if you read the scriptures, uh, New Testament, you'll find that even at the time of Jesus, there were different views about things between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for example. And uh, the one group believed that there was a resurrection of the dead, and the other one did not. In fact, when, G- when St. Paul was put on trial in front of the Romans, his, he, he, he confounded his accusers by saying, I am being on trial because of, I believe in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees started to fight so bad that the, the tribune had to rescue Paul from, with the soldiers to take him out of there because they were fighting among themselves. So no, there are a variety of beliefs about those things in Judaism. And, you know, there's also, you have to take into account, there is a kind of secular Judaism that doesn't claim any particular uh, religious uh, belief, but more of a, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, uh, an ethnic belief. Uh, so it's complicated. But to simply say the Jews don't believe in the afterlife, no, I don't, that's certainly not correct. Lee from New Milford says, last week Pope Francis criticized people who call themselves guardians of traditions, but of dead traditions, saying that failing to move forward is dangerous for the church today. He emphasized that the true Catholic Christian and human tradition grows, progresses. What are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? Well, Lee, I think that the Holy Father says things that people want to interpret in different ways. And I think, obviously, the Pope is not calling into a question tradition with a capital T because scripture and tradition are the that those are the things by which the church lives and hands on the faith so tradition with a capital T is extremely important and uh, that uh, is something that we do have to be a guardian of and he above all is, as the uh, successor of saint peter is a guardian of tradition but in the plural with a small t i you know traditions I think that the Pope is concerned that some people uh, want to, this is my word, maybe fuss about uh, certain things that today are no longer as effective as they once were, or it can even become an obstacle if they become mere human traditions that somehow obscure the gospel. So I think, you know, it depends what you want to read into what the Pope is saying. I mean, there are those who would uh, criticize him in saying that he is even uh, including uh, things that are of the substance of the tradition and, uh, you know, others who would say that's not the case. But I think we should always try to interpret what the Pope says in in the best possible fashion in keeping with our Catholic faith. Dan from Sharon says, I attended Catholic schools for 12 years and remember most of my catechism lessons. There is one thing, though, that bothers me. After receiving communion, I often notice people returning to their pews while visibly chewing the host. I remember being taught that you should either let the host dissolve in your mouth as a sign of reverence or swallow it quickly. Which way of consuming the host is correct? Well, really, uh, Dan, I know what you're talking about because I do remember in an older day, uh, the sisters, Mm. uh, when I was in grade school, taught us that we shouldn't chew the host but quite honestly, I don't think that that is a direction or tradition that, that needs to be followed or kept. You know, Jesus said that, that he, uh, you know, gave himself, his body to us in the form of, of bread. But bread, 
you know, it's, it is food. And so uh, to chew it is not disrespectful. You know, I think of the Eastern churches uh, where the bread is not our little flat host, but it is uh, leavened bread, and you, you, could, you have to chew it. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, this is not an invalid tradition or uh, something wrong. So I don't think that, uh, that you should be troubled at all. That's not irreverent to chew the host as it's the body of Christ, but in the form of, of bread, which is food. I have no doubt that the, the sisters uh, or others who said not to chew the host meant it as a sign of great reverence for Holy Communion. That's, that's what they were thinking. But it's not irreverent uh, to consume the host in, in the manner of, of uh, chewing it. Rebecca from New Haven says, In my dealings with youth groups over the past few years, I have discovered that young people in the church want to be heard and included within church leadership and decision-making. What is the Archdiocese doing to encourage involvement of our youth and cultivate our future leaders? Well, that's a very good question, Rebecca, and I'm happy to tell you that on Pentecost Sunday, uh, on the eve of Pentecost, Saturday night, I celebrated Mass at St. Joseph's Church in New Haven for members of the Frasati Group and Crossroads for Christ, both of which are uh, organizations or groups, rather, of, of young adult Catholics who are very interested in their faith and the leadership among them is uh, of young Catholics and are trying to engage young people in, in the life of the church down in the New Haven area. And I know that they're also trying to uh, form groups and do things elsewhere. You know, when we had the Synod, we, tr- we also reached out to younger people to ask their uh, uh, thoughts about uh, the, um, the, the, the church and where the church was headed. So when you say the Archdiocese, I think... Uh, through our office, uh, offices here for evangelization and catechesis, schools, we, we, in our high schools particularly, in all those levels, we try to, uh, to engage. But I do think it's very important for parishes to do this too, because that's really the, the backbone of it all. That's where the church life is lived in each town and uh, community. Through our Hartford Bishops Foundation, we also, I've encouraged par- parishes, pastors, uh, in conducting the capital campaign that we have, Forward with Faith, you know, half the money raised stays right at the parish for their plans moving forward. And I told the pastors, if you need a new parking lot or roof, that's fine to to designate the money for that. But if you don't, or whatever else, equally important, if not more so, is to lay down plans for your parish to reach out uh, to young people, uh, to the wider community, what can what can you do? What kind of things can you do uh, to do this? So, on all these different levels, Rebecca, we are trying to uh, to do what you uh, rightly point out is a very important thing. Archbishop, it's good to hear that you're encouraging parishes to to do what is necessary to make young people feel comfortable and welcomed within the church, and give them a sense of uh, leadership, and that the church is genuinely concerned about them. Well, let me say something that might get me into trouble. It's perhaps a little provocative, but with all of this uh, pastoral planning whereby we are combining congregations that right now are not even half full or, you know, in a lot of our churches. Now, I can say this because I'm 73 years old, but, you know, if at a given parish uh, everybody at Mass in a half 
or or uh, empty or more than half empty church is my age it's not going to necessarily create a, a situation where young people feel particularly i won't say welcome because i'm sure people would welcome them but they don't feel they're you know part of their own generation one of the things with pastoral planning we're hoping is that when a church becomes more full not overcrowded, that's for sure, uh, sadly, because I wish it were overcrowded, but at least a bigger congregation. It might also draw uh, some young people that will bring other young people to come to Mass too. So that's even part of, hopefully, will be a good effect of pastoral planning. And I dare say, where people have accepted this and where it's moving along nicely, it is having a good effect. I've had people tell me that they're happy that now at their Sunday Mass, it's not just, you know, a skeleton crew of people, but the church is more full, not not overcrowded by any means, but it's more full and there's more of a sense of participation and being together for Mass. So all of these things are very important. That's, I know that pastoral planning and the things we're experiencing can be painful, challenging, but uh, it's meant for a greater good. And I'm confident with God's help and, and the goodwill of our Catholic people that good can come from this. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing? We adore you, O God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that our lives may be filled with a deeper faith, hope, and love, that our faith in this great mystery of the Godhead that we adore in this world may lead us to a vision of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven, and that perfect joy and peace and bliss that the vision of God will provide for those who love him. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week and celebrating the great feast of Corpus Christi with you then. Thank you.